You're very welcome to this latest edition of View from the Pool. I'm very excited to have on with me today a dear old friend and colleague, I would have to say, Andy Reid from Places Leisure, who is the Head of Safety at Places Leisure. So, Andy, you're very welcome. Hi, Robin. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's uh, strange times. Uh, so, but, so, but so this is kind of something a little bit different to, to keep us entertained and try and uh, dig into each other a little bit more. I, I know you and I tend to talk a lot and move off to the left and the right, but we usually get, end up back in the middle again. So I, uh, it's great to have you on. I'm really glad that you could join us today. What I wanted, what would be a good place, Andy, is if you could give us a potted history of of your your career really from lifeguarding days to where you are now that would be a good good way of introducing yourself right okay well <laughs> let's go let's go back a bit 1976 um that really hot summer um i was a 16 year old who was just about to come up to o levels and uh, i've got a pool no, a bronze medallion. It wasn't even a pool bronze medallion at the time. And the local pool to me um, in Sudbury in Suffolk was heaving. They were desperate for lifeguards. So I trot down, given a showed my bronze medallion, given a whistle, told to start there and then, um, no induction, cut down jeans, horrible T-shirt, and... Uh, that summer, absolutely fell in love with uh, with lifeguarding, working in outdoor pools, and uh, after completely messing up A levels a couple of years later, which was a uh, which was really thankful because I then ended up staying because somebody at the council had faith in me, um, a guy called Bob Whitfield, who I shall forever be grateful for. Bob um, then appointed me full time, um, and so I stayed there for eleven summers. After those 11 summers, we pushed hard to try and get a decent indoor facility. And we certainly did get a decent indoor facility. But the council, in their wisdom, decided that uh, there was nobody with the right experience who worked for them to manage it or work there. So I was made redundant. Actually, I was pushed into voluntary redundancy because it was cheaper for them um, at the time. And... uh, company called Crossland Leisure took on the management of that facility on behalf of the council. It was only the second time that happened in the UK. This is before compulsive competitive tendering. Yeah, I was and, going to ask uh, you, what year was that, Andy? That was 1986 that I was appointed. The centre opened in 87. Yeah, because um, CCT like, came in about, what, 80? I think it was about 89, I'd have thought, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I've given you a bit of wider leisure. Yeah, I've given you a bit of a wider story right now because um, I said I was appointed. Because actually, what they did is they then appointed me, and uh, I was introduced as um, as the new ops manager, which um, went down like a lead balloon <laughs> the council. They just made me redundant. Um, but again, it was all about it was all about swimming pools. It was about swimming and. My goodness, those those eleven summers that uh, I spent at the outdoor pool were absolutely incredible. There's a book in that, I would bet. There's absolutely. a book in you on that one. Oh, there's <laughs> and, a there's certainly is, Robin. <laughs> and Crossland Leisure back in, in in those days, what size of a company was that? 
Um, well, the message has probably came out. We're a massive company, but the truth is, when the Sudbury contract um, was signed, the only other facility was at Camberley. So it um, really was, which was the, the arena the early centre. days. Then, yeah, Camberley Arena, which actually last year or the year before was demolished, and a new centre opens there next year. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you were really were in at the very start. I was in right at the start of yeah. um, private leisure management. Um, was incredibly badly treated by some local authority um, mm. leisure managers who totally disagreed with private management. Mm. Um, I certainly learned what the expression was sent to Coventry. Um, yes. <laughs> And it, and it wasn't I was sent to Coventry, it was just nobody spoke to me. No, that's not fair. Some people yeah. some people really oh. did find it difficult. Yeah, I mean, I worked in, in Scotland in 88. I was brought over there to, to get involved in CCT. And I'm still convinced to this day I was brought in because of the accent and I was different and to be the hatchet man. Yeah. And the, the, the private sector were, were, was the Antichrist. It was the aggression towards it, whereas I kind of liked the idea of it. Uh, but that, that's another story and, and another book probably. One question I want to ask you on what you just said was about the, the bronze medallion. What, was there a trigger for you to do that or was it, it was part of school or did, was there someone got you involved and dragged you into it? You know, what, what's the background to, to give you that first step into I've got my well, The background was I was a, a swimmer and ah, right, I've okay. been very involved with the local swimming club and it seemed like a next logical step. Mum and dad were very keen on me being safe near water because I was yeah. a I had a canoe at the time, and so it seemed logical. I, I looked at the life-saving club qualifications, and from memory, it went from elementary to intermediate um, to bronze medallion, yeah. and then yeah. something like a ward of merit, I think it was. But yeah. uh, I guess the real story in there is my great-uncle drowned in the local river because we're very much a, a Suffolk family yes. back in 1897. And uh, we had details of that story, um, how it unfolded, all the details of the inquest um, and about how he was taken on a rowing boat and allegedly fell out when there was a gust of wind. Um, the other two people on the rowing boat were his choir master and uh, I think it was a church sexton. Um, now imagine that happening in uh, in 2020. I think there'd be a big inquest yeah. in terms of safeguarding. But that's the background. So me, water safety, family of swimmers, logically yeah. all came together. Yeah, it's kind of like like my lot, I suppose. Uh, I think yeah, it, it, it was destiny nearly, I think, for you. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so from Crossland then, I presume you never worked in local authority again then? No, if I, a few, a few opportunities, and there were only a few, um, cropped up where I probably could have gone back to working for a local authority, but I wouldn't have lasted long because I'd, I'd, I'd have been too outspoken. Yeah. Um, I'd, have, I'd have been sacked. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't have dealt with the politics and the members. Um, yeah. And we'd learned so much in terms of, we're naive in many ways, but we learned so much in managing swimming pools. We had, which will interest you, I think I may have shared it with you in the past, we actually had, in 1987, a bank of 
TV screens and cameras, not underwater, overhead cameras around the poolside. And we were regularly challenged by staff, you can't spy on us. And customers, you can't do that. You were invading our privacy. Um, but of course, we plugged on and uh, there's no doubt that that helped us um, operate a safer pool. That, that was Kingfisher, yes? That was Kingfisher, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember you sending me a, I think, an old newspaper clipping. That was it, that was it, with um, yeah. the ops manager sitting in front of them, and yeah. one camera had a, a joystick, so you could move the camera around, and yeah. lifeguards always wanted to avoid being in the uh, being in the focus of that yeah, camera. Think, yeah, PTZ, I think is what they called them, with a point to shoot or something. I just remember something like that. It's also, not what the lifeguards yeah. called them. No, I bet you they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. So that was 1987, and, and then what? What? What was the next? Well, the next that step was, was still under Crossland. Yes. Yeah, it was still under Crossland, and uh, I stayed with Crossland until Crossland's demise. Um, mm. I ended up as ops director. I was a regional director. Um, a couple of years later, I think that was about 91, and we took on by that stage new facilities in East Anglia at Colchester. Um, up in Northamptonshire at a place called Rushton um, and then the final nail in the coffin for the company um, and I, I oversaw it was Bedford Oasis um, which is the oh, most me. most strange most yeah. strange facility you can find anywhere one of the scariest in the UK I think it certainly was and the, the opening day when we put the uh, when we started because we really didn't have any opportunity to, to to have any trial runs at Bedford and the opening day when the circulation started we had bolts flying out from um, reclining lounges that are in the pool um, it, it was a mess then Crossland moved to, to DC Leisure and was that well, Crossland, was, Crossland split that, before the end. Ah, um, right. Crossland Leisure went um, went belly up, and that was where I was. Um, and the other half of the business um, continued as DC Leisure under David Cross. Yes. So the part that I was working with, um, we ended up transferring the contract to Serco. Uh, there's 12 okay. months with Serco. Then they lost the contract to St Albans Leisure. St Albans Leisure became Relaxion. Right. Um, there's under, a blast under, from the past. Under Relaxion, I ended up um, going down to work in Bromley as a consultant manager because Relaxion office offered um, a consultancy business to a company called Tar or a trust called Target Leisure. Um, then I left. Um, I left there after about four years and came, as I saw it, came back back to my roots at DC Leisure. Um, did, and uh, yeah, Relaxion, did they have an Irish guy working with them? Or they did, John, John McGinley from Belfast. That's the very mad, flip yeah. me, yeah, John, yeah. I'd, Paul, Paul, yeah Campbell, I'd, Paul Campbell was the finance director, yeah. yeah. I had forgotten all about Relaxion. This is what I love about these conversations, mm. you know. Well, Relaxion became Leisure Connection, that's right. And then became it's all these little. This little bit of social history, as we talked about, just putting all the bits of the jigsaw back together. So from Relaxia, and then you went back to, to D.C.? To D.C., yeah. Originally, yeah. Was, uh, um, when I rejoined D.C., I was a business development manager. Um, well, so uh, 
I think the first contract, well, I know the first contract um, that I managed to win was um, at Ottlesford, which is where Stansted Airport is. And uh, we, we transformed a leisure centre there where I think um, I think it was Antiques Roadshow that we got a booking for and uh, nobody particularly liked this leisure centre in Saffron Walden as a town and uh, we put Antiques Roadshow on and we absolutely rammed the town there was traffic jams everywhere and from although everybody moaned about it from that day the whole centre absolutely exploded and went through the roof so busy just buzzing from from the Antiques Roadshow. How strange yeah. that is a yeah. connection. And obviously you stayed with uh, DC. Uh, it's gone through a couple of different names over the last few years since I've known you. But I think the burning question for me is when did you, when and how did you take that that cross or that leap into the safety side of things? I, I'm sure knowing you as I know you, that safety was always a, a priority and, and was part of your, your makeup. Even how you described why you get into, you know, did your bronze medallion. But it's interesting, what I'd be interested to know where did somebody select you and say, do you know what, Andy Reid's the man to do that? Or did you have an interest in doing it and kind of push yourself forward? Another friend, another friend of ours. We should ask the same question to because it'd be interesting to see what he said. Alex Blackwell. Um, I, I, I looked at um, in the early days of Cross and Leisure. Um, the managing director at the time, Tim Cornstrom, we looked at who we could get as a consultant and mm. who we could work with to to pull together um, some PSOPs, um, NOPs, EAPs in those days. And we talked to various organisations and ended up working with Keith Seish. Um, right. And uh, bless him. And uh, Keith, yeah. Keith worked very closely with us. Um, I always, as I moved on to, to Circo and then relaxing and whatever, I made a determined effort to step away from safety. Um, really? And when I came back to DC Leisure, um, I said, the one thing that I'm not doing is safety and I'm not going anywhere near there um, but it gradually evolved um, that I started to lead safety Keith was back on board with us at the time um, worked very closely with the, with the, with the guys um, Alex Blackwell was around looking after lifeguarding um, a, a young slimmer version of Mr Blackwell he'll thank me for, he'll thank me for yeah. saying that um, but uh, we we um, we we got quite well, a very strong team. We had um, people like Joe Talbot, um, Tara Dillon working with us at the time, um, Martin Simcox. Um, so there's Goodness four me. people there that have gone through to yeah. work with the the RLSS, RLSS. and IQL, Simon Crute. Um, there are large numbers of guys that um, you know that have have developed through as an organisation, and you know there's no doubt that if you look back to the starting point of that, Keith Sage had a had a big impact yeah. um, on on the way that we didn't always agree with Keith, but what he did do is he 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 threw enough opportunities in our direction, all of us, for for us to take those opportunities, um, learn, develop. And hopefully, operationally, come out with the right answers. Um, and so, what what decade was that we're talking about specifically here, roughly? 
Well, I've been with um, I've been with places now twenty five years this year. So this would have been about mid nineties, right, okay. uh, mid, mid mid to mid to late nineties. Um, yeah, because I met Keith Sage myself about ninety seven, ninety eight, yeah, and he quite a name of of himself at that stage. It had been about the mid to late nineties that I first yeah. met Alex and uh, Alex and Joe. My goodness. So it, it kind of evolved. It was one of those things that kept, it's, it, it was maybe getting pushed on you and you didn't realise it. I think it, I think if you look back at it, it was probably being pushed on me, but I think I was also probably grabbing hold of it without realising yeah. it. Um, yeah. But, you know, at the time, I'd have been adamant no, I wasn't. But again, with the benefit of... Uh, of, of looking back, I think I probably did, and I think it's probably the right place um, because there's no doubt I've uh, I've enjoyed coming to work um, virtually every day uh, for for the last thirty odd years, forty years since I've been involved in leisure. It certainly, for, from from my business, at, you know how I've seen in the last ten plus years since I left local authority. The, the the workload on you safety guys and managers is is incredible. You're you're probably more difficult to get hold of than than a CEO, generally speaking, uh, because there's it's such a huge pitch now, isn't it? It's such a vast arena that yeah. that with so much underneath it that there's that level of responsibility for, and there's always seems to be something going on. Uh, so it just shows you how it's gone from you know. <laughs> Three guys in a rowing boat going across the river. We're obviously paid a similar amount to the CEOs as well, so that probably that probably is one of the reasons um, not. Um, as to, as to, but I think that, I think the key to it is actually Mike. We're the we're the catalyst, the conduit that gets the messages to yeah. to the people working in the front line because that really is where not only the work is, but it's those folks that have to make things happen. Um, yeah. And uh, so I think the workload is there, but I think it goes right the way through. And uh, this is probably, safety is probably the only job in leisure which you can be involved with everybody. And I think mm. that's another one of the attractions for me because um, I, I, I enjoy getting involved with every bit of the business um, as opposed to just a single bit. It, actually, actually I, I agree with you 100% there because I think it would drive me mad personally to be, let's say, a leisure manager and just stuck in that little bubble where, you know, I talk to your guys an awful lot. So I talk to, let's say, the guys up north and mention somebody down south and they don't know them. I have a conversation with you and you've got... The, the, the fingers everywhere and you know everybody uh, and that variety must be uh, appealing as well as sometimes being a bit of a, a burden but uh, one of the things when you mentioned Keith Sitch uh, I, I, I'd said I, I was introduced to Keith Sitch I think it was 96, 97 when I was fortunate enough to be building asked a project manager a new build leisure centre I find him fascinating because his thinking was so much out of the box and so different than that had come across before. Now, I would always say Northern Ireland is at least five years behind some of the procedures and policies, etc., that go on in England. So the way Keith 
took us from designing a new leisure centre from the roadside and just the plans, myself and the architect, we flew over to, to Manchester and spent the day with him and he just took us, walked us through the whole thing. And he was probably the first person that really uh, pricked my imagination about a different view, a different way of looking at safety. Uh, because at that stage, my experience was I'd never met a health and safety officer, in inverted commas, that I liked. They were all a pain in the ass because it was always a barrier. Oh, you can't do that. Well, how can I do that? I don't know, but you can't do that. It was that sort of approach very much from my background. It was it was never how can we work the problem. And that was Keith was the first person that actually taught me that it's all about working the problem to get the best outcome for everybody. And the one I always remember... Uh, we had uh, moving squash court walls so these were walls could be opened up uh, there were ABS squash courts I think so you could open it up into a multi games yeah. area or you could play double squash and I said I wanted to run my uh, birthday parties in there I'd like to put a bouncy castle in and the first thing he said well where are you where are you going to plug it in uh, and I just thought yeah that's a good point <laughs> Because you can't have trailing leads, and it was all the can'ts. And then that's when he hit me. Well, let's just work this problem. How can we get around this? And of course, we ended up with uh, lovely concealed plugs in the tin. <laughs> I don't know whether it's tin these days for squash, but it was then. So that was a really good introduction to me. And so that inevitably led me on to to some different conversations. And I, I was lucky enough. I played a bit of music back then, badly. And I used to kick about with one of the lads in the local bar, a guy called Eugene Cunningham, who was the head of the paramedics in, uh, in, in our area. And we were sitting in the bar one Friday, as you do, uh, and discussing, he, he said to me, you know, we're talking about the new leisure centre, and he said, do you know what you want to do? He said, you want to do, he says, I'm just back from London. I was doing some training with British Airways, and they're sticking these things called AEDs on all flights. And of course I said, what the heck is an AED? Uh, he explained to me what it was, and I thought, you know what, that's a brilliant idea. That's fantastic. How much are they? And he said, I don't know, they're about six grand each. <laughs> I said, well, I'm getting two of them. <laughs> My typical reaction. Uh, I remember going to council at the time. Every single cost, as you can imagine, was scrutinised as far as building a new leisure centre. Why do we want this? Why do we want that? And I remember going to the committee and saying, I want to put these AED things in. And we're going to be one of the first leisure centres in the UK to actually put one in. I've worked out how we're going to get trained. I'll get our staff trained, et cetera, et cetera. And the support was just bump, you know, let's get one in. Let's get two in. And 12 grand was just ticked off like that. Off you go. And that was my first introduction to AEDs. And that leads me on to obviously your experiences and, and where we are as, as a country in the UK. I think leisure industries had AEDs in every centre, more or less every centre, pretty quickly. But it's this outreach into the community now, which is interesting for me, particularly from your own experiences. Well, Robin, we're now on to a subject which uh, I'm quite passionate about, as you know. Um, Get out of the way first, they work. Um, If anybody's got any doubt about that, um, 25th of uh, August 2018, um, one was used on me. 
in real life with a cardiac arrest um, by a first responder, and there's absolutely no question they work. So moving on from that, for probably the last 15, 15 years or so, we tried to get defib, tried to get defibs into every one of our buildings. Yeah. Um, well, about 15 years ago, we started. Um, we were probably ahead of the game there, again, down to Keith. And you mentioned British Airways, also down to a um, consultant that uh, we've got working with us called Tony Hanley. Yeah. Um, Tony is a, a, a cardiac um, consultant, um, retired now, but Tony um, works with us to look at the downloads every time a D, defib is used in anger. And uh, he also works for British, Air, worked for British <laughs> Airways. Um, More synergy. We've had... We've had um, 80% success rate in all the times that our defibs have been used and for 10 years now we've had defibs on every site um, 10 years i never forget never forget it's about 10 years yeah. I'll never forget Joe Tolbert coming to a meeting um, and presenting to the main board and Steve Philpott was the um, CEO at the time um, Sandra Dog was the finance director and Joe presented some information about defibs after a successful um, use of a defib at one of our sites. Um, the meeting was at uh, the old Fleming Park in Eastleigh, mm. which is now Places, Places Eastleigh. And after Joe went through it, Steve said, and how much are these defibs? And Joe said, well, by the time you've, you've got all the bits and pieces and whatever, about twelve to 1,500 quid each. He said, and how many sites haven't we got these on? And I think at the time there may have been about 10. Mm. Um, and... So he turned around to Sandra and said, we need to buy these and, uh, and get them in. Um, Sandra agreed. Joe and me looked at each other and Joe said, so I need to complete a CapEx. And Steve just said, no, get it ordered. Brilliant. Um, and that meant that every one of our sites had a defib and we've always put them in as standard now. 80% yeah. success rate. Um, the downside of that is that... Um, you know, 20% are not successful, but sometimes they're not going to be successful wherever they are. Um, 80% sounds incredibly high, and it is, bearing in mind that less than 10% of people that have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survive. Yes. Um, so, you know, we're using one about every... Um, about every six weeks in anger at one of our centres, uh, uh, yeah. which wor works out about 10 a year. Um, as regular as clockwork, and now I'm talking about it, it will probably happen in the next seven days um, since we've reopened after lockdown. Yes. Um, and uh, one of the great things that came out yesterday, um, you, you might have seen it, Robin, it's, um, I, I, I was unaware, and it's actually come from a, a Northern Irish MP in, in the House of Commons, um, that he's proposed that when you put forward the first reading um, for a paper to propose that defibrillators are required by legislation in the future in all public buildings in the UK. Now, he's got a second reading in, uh, in February, and I dare say there'll be a few years lead into that uh, because work will need to be done. But um, you say that Ireland's, you know, possibly yeah. a few years behind. But I, I thought yesterday, you know, it's come from a, come from a Northern Ireland MP following a, a guy that uh, in Northern Ireland um, was successfully defibrillated um, and uh, back in 2015 and a survivor. Um, so, you know, th things are moving forwards and 
were in a leisure centre environment. Swimming pools, without question, was the reason that they went in. Yes. And I think if we start to look at the figures now, well, if we, if we look at the figures now, there's been a slight move and a slight rebalancing between fitness and swimming pool incidents because mm-hmm. a lot of time the, the incidents happen in pools. So where somebody suffers through ill health mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody, the word, the D word yeah. that I absolutely hate, yeah. drowning. Um, because it's not drowning. It's uh, it's an ill, Ill health episode um, that then leads on. And if things aren't dealt with quickly, it could end up being drowning. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. What technology though has come in the last, you know, twenty or thirty years? Whether we talk about <laughs> defibs and violent system, automatic dosing systems, internet, <laughs> internet. Yeah, my my kids don't believe there was life before internet. How did you survive? My. How did we survive without yeah, mobile we, phones? Much better, possibly. We, we, <laughs> oh, we thought it. We thought it was exciting when we had uh, when we had radios yeah, around, and then yeah. people started to drop them in the pool. Uh, I, I, funny, yeah. that, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you: was what how how often were they used in anger in, in your sites? And it, it's uh, it's more than six I thought weeks. it was going to every be. Every six weeks. That, that's yeah, it's every six weeks. That just shows you, you know, as a snapshot of what's going on around the country, uh, or is it because you're more likely to have an episode whenever you're exercising? I don't know. It's it's interesting. Um, oh, it's more people coming to leisure yeah, centres, yeah. I think. Busy, busy I'll, I'll, if you look at it, yeah. yeah. I, uh, you mentioned something there that really resonated with me about the data that people can get. Like the, the, the paramedics and the, the heart specialist have all of a sudden were able to acquire because of technology uh, from the readout from the DFib. The, the fact that yeah, so it's a it's they keep, fascinating area. They just this came in. So normally they had a person brought in and they had no clue what went on, and all of a sudden they've got a little bit of uh, medical history in their hands. But it's, it's something that's ever progressing because only only a few months ago we had a um, a defib used. I won't say which part of the country because yeah. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But uh, uh, we had a defib used. Um, chap was taken off to hospital. Um, he had some um, surgery, and I think that included um, the insertion of a, a stent, and uh, might, might have been something else. And he then came back to the centre and said, um, "Just out of interest, you didn't have the download from the from the defib." Uh, we said, "Well, yes, we did, um, and we passed it through. Um, it hadn't actually reached his um, his consultant and his surgeon, so we gave him another copy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this had been analysed by um, Tony Hanley. He took this back to his uh, consultant, and actually, the the surgery that he'd had um, wasn't quite the best, right?" And so he ended up going and having another another, another op. Um, whether that was a, a, a small um, defibrillator being inserted into his yeah. in, into his heart as a pacemaker, I, I'm not sure. But uh, it it shows how some some you know first responders, stroke paramedics, recognise the importance of having that data and get it through to the right people, and others perhaps don't realise that. It is available, um, and that literally happened in the last four months. 
essentially what happened was that when the, the heart specialist got a copy of that downloaded data, they were able to say, well, we actually didn't do what was best for the patient. We, we, we need that's to do right, something that's that right. absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, because yeah, the data as laymen, you and me would struggle to read it and yeah, understand obviously. it. Um, but when it's, we always get a, a small narrative um, with the report and that is readable by most laymen. Um, but when you look at the graph in the in the report, yeah. it doesn't mean anything to me. However many times people explain it yeah. to me, it's uh, it just it, gets it's stuff. completely meaningless. Yeah, it, it's it's obviously from what what I what I'm involved with with the technology in the pools. The interesting thing for me is that we can actually analyze, as you say, what the medical events that happened before somebody goes to the bottom, you know, which is the information we didn't have before in a very similar way with the, with the defibs. And that's probably the same in, in a lot of areas of life now because of technology. You know, you, you know, yeah, your GPS in your car tell you know, you have a smash and all oh, he was doing 70 miles an hour when it happened, etc., yeah. <laughs> etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Wow. I know that uh, on the GPS side of things, I know that there's work being done in the UK to try and um, ensure that all defibs are now registered with something called the circuit, and uh, that's been done by the British Heart Foundation, and not through the British Heart Foundation, but I know another national body now that's looking to see if all the defibs can actually be traced on GPS wow. um, so people know exactly where they are because one of the, one of the things in the leisure centre you mentioned that you know you, you, you wanted to have two in yeah. the early days um, as to how many you have mm. and the key to it and some of the large centres do certainly you know now need to start thinking about more than one because if that defib is more than two minutes away from the casualty you've got to get it and get back to the casualty yeah. and four minutes is probably four minutes longer than you want but four minutes is really critical to get that defib onto the casualty yeah. and you know in the UK a lot of first responders um, have networks with the paramedics so if they pick up a, a call um, and the air ambulances if they pick up a call see somebody um, as at a cardiac arrest they can go immediately and get um, to that casualty within a short period of time I remember we we started to train a couple of the shopkeepers up the town as well, which everybody thought yeah. we were bonkers. But it was because, again, well, you know me, a bit of a maverick, so it wasn't like it was asking for forgiveness rather than permission. And it was, to me, it was sensible that if somebody, where I'm from is a very small town, that if somebody was in difficulty up the street, well, it's not, it's not our defib. You know, the rate pairs, as we still have in NI, own that just as much as anybody that came into the centre. So, again, that was that, like that's 2001, it wasn't yesterday. But that's the way we were thinking at the time that, you know, if you can make a difference, it's all about making a difference. Well, you, you say, I mean, what that's so relevant what you just said because it's, it's not that defib is a community yeah. defib. And, you know, one of the mistakes, again, that I think we've probably made with leisure centres in the UK has put the defib inside the centre. Mm. Why? Yeah. Why don't we put the defib outside the centre in a, in a lock yeah. box so it can be used for the centre, but if the centre's not open, it can be used by the community as well. And it's easily accessible, 24-7 access to it. Um, which, which 
leads me on to your, you know, obviously I've seen your passion for AEDs since your, your, your event. Would you want to talk to me a little bit about where you are with that? What, 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 obviously I know what the trigger was. Um, yeah, just to, to fill me in on, on, on how that really yeah, kicked yeah, off. I mean, I'm just behind me, I've got a, a map of my local town. Yeah. Um, Sudbury in uh, I keep saying Suffolk because there's three or four yeah. Sudburys in, in, in England um, but um, I realised that after pushing to get them in leisure centres we really need to get more in town and my my neighbours um, decided that uh, after my 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 incident that it might be a good idea to get a defib for our on the corner of the estate where we live so um, we we ended up with twenty neighbours put in fifty quid each to begin with. And I think we ended up with twenty six in the end. So we bought a defib um, guy who got a perfect garage wall to put it on um, without even being asked. Said put it on my garage wall. Another guy, electrician, he said uh, I'll, I'll fit it. So we've now got a defib, and I thought that was relatively straightforward yeah. that happening although I didn't have too much to do yeah. with it um, so you were I the catalyst a, really for that yeah yeah, I was the catalyst yeah. yeah I think the town now I need want to I want to put a bit back more back yeah. in here the town needs more defibs it's not one of the towns that's got loads of them so I so for 2020 my target was going to be to have 20 24-7 defibs um, I hate failing but I failed um, I'll blame I'll, I'll blame <laughs> yeah, Covid I think you're okay with but, that one. Um, so by the end of 2021, um, it's pretty obvious what I'm looking for. And it won't be 20, it'll be 21. Yeah. Um, interesting, the knock-on effect has been, though, that uh, a number of neighbouring villages, one especially a place called Long Melford, um, has now got a defib for every, I think it's 300 people that live in that village. Um, and so I said village, you can argue it's a small yeah. town, but uh, it, there's, I think there's um, eight defibs in Long Melford in public areas. Um, in, in Sudbury where I live, there's um, a defib for every 1,100 people. Um, so I'm trying to trying to goad people that live in Sudbury so they've been shown up by their local noisy neighbours <laughs> that uh, that have got it right. Um, but we'll get, we'll yeah, get there. And so the question needs to be asked was where did the defib come from that helped you? It was with the first responder. Okay, right. Yeah, no, the first responder, luckily he was, um, I'm on the edge of town. I'm not exactly sure where he is, uh, where he was at the time, but um, so they they work closely with the paramedics. Um, so he came, he, he, I was giving half of it away now, he came out. Um, I know him, I've met him since, and there's loads of iron in that because when I was talking about local defibs, I was actually having conversations with him, and I didn't know he was the he person. Was the in fact, in fact, it wasn't until some time later that I suddenly put yeah. two and two together. Um, but um, no, that that happened. Um, Sorry, I need to ask and, another question because just for my own benefit, the first responder came from the nine 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 call, I presume. But but the first responder wasn't a paramedic. No, I mean, there's a cycle of events here. The first responder came, wasn't a paramedic. Okay. They were, as I understand it, I'm out yeah. of it completely. As I understand it, they turned up first. Next door neighbours, a, um, a trained first aider. Okay. 
he realised something was wrong when he saw the car turn up. Um, he came and helped the first responder. Um, the first responder then was there and the paramedics okay. then arrived. Um, the first responder had got quite an extensive background in training um, and far more than you'd normally expect. Mm -hmm. So was I able to help the paramedics. Um, what then happens is that um, when the paramedics know or get the calls, they're picked up by the local air ambulance. Yes. I say local, about 60 yeah. miles away, but uh, they're picked up by the local air ambulance. They look at it and say, um, right, we've got a 58-year-old here that's having a cardiac arrest. The defib was with them within minutes. Um, they've got all the right support. It's worth us getting this helicopter up in the air. We can be there from the time their red phone goes in Cambridge to land in Sudbury in 17 minutes. Um, so they did just that. And supporting the crew that were already there was um, two, two paramedics and uh, a fully qualified and experienced, obviously qualified but experienced, A&E doctor. Um, so it's amazing how the whole thing... Yeah all gels together and whether it's voluntary um, first responders to, to, to you know the ambulance service and, and paramedics to a charitable um, which all the air ambulances are in the UK yes um, unfortunately a, a, a charita charitable body um, so, uh, so do you say unfortunately unfortunately ah that's interesting because I, I I like a number of them um, now I've got to know the air ambulance lads think it's actually fortunate okay that, uh, and the reason is they don't get caught up with any of the nhs red tape okay no politics i i, I guess it's like my I, i'm an RNLI man being a sailor and a yachtsman so i can i can get that actually when, when i think yeah, about yeah. it i think yeah. it's probably because in in northern ireland we've only just got an air ambulance recently and, and that's a, a whole other story and a sad story and a joyous story all wrapped into one but it, it leads me on to the the air ambulance story if you like in that i think is it, is it come from yourself i've read quite a few little papers now about our our, our guidance on where do air ambulance land at your leisure center yep and well I'd, I'd, one of the things that um I was conscious of is where these things yeah. land and uh, and leisure centres because I witnessed um, something. Of, I remember you telling in, me. It, yeah, in, uh, in in August, um, early August 2018, um, where a guy unfortunately died when I was playing walking mm. football at Hadley, which is uh, a small town in Suffolk. Yep. And I saw this air ambulance or helicopter land on two tennis courts. And uh, I was absolutely amazed, the skill it took to come down there. And I suddenly realised that um, the opportunity for leisure centres to have a, a landing place mm -hmm. um, and offer that, it just seemed to, to be perfect. Made sense. Spoke to, spoke to the East Anglian Air Ambulance and their um, aviation consultant, and they said, this is just what we wanted. Mm -hmm. So the next stage is, why did you get this message out across the leisure centres across the UK. Mm -hmm. So I had a chat to Caroline Constantine at Right Direction yes. and said, how about a bit of partnership working here? Um, I'll introduce this. Can you get the message out? 
Caroline grabs hold of it and it's something that needs to be revisited after yes. lockdown but uh, there's no question that um, leisure centres can offer some perfect venues and two two tennis courts yeah. sizes conveniently all you need and people say well the tennis courts might be locked but uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the one of the paramedics from the from East Anglian Air Ambulance um, he said to me don't worry he said one of the things that's always in my yeah. kit bag is bolt yeah, croppers I bet you. he said the amount of times that we need bolt croppers I just think it's incredible that from from that experience that you had just before your medical event, that, that what's that's done? You know, I, I, it's the right time, the right place, and and that's prompted this. I wasn't going to. It's not a crusade, but it's just good common sense makes good sense. Leisure well, centres about door five to six. Pitches yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah. Land there. 40, 40, years, Forty years in leisure. I've never been at a centre where somebody had, had yeah. that experience. It, it, um, three weeks before I had mine, I witnessed it, and the poor chap died. Yeah, it, it's. I, I was chatting to uh, Gary Johnson from Australia last week. We were doing a podcast, and and one of the things that he talked about was when he does this high intensity training was lifeguards bringing somebody across to the edge of the pool and there's laying ropes in uh, and he uh, you know what do you do because you don't really you aren't really trained about that uh, and that came from an experience that he had, had as well so he included that in his training I said the lifeguard well what do you do here you know, do you go under do you go over what's right for the patients and it's all these little bits of uh, life experience that I'll say you're passing on, but that's exactly why all the leisure centres now are looking, or a lot of leisure centres are looking, how do you land a helicopter or an air ambulance in, in our facilities is because you asked the question, and that's now mushrooming, which is fantastic. Yeah, so I think, is that us about up to speed then? I think we've uh, covered quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's uh, good chat, Robin. Yeah, as always. Um, yeah. I'm just off. You know, I hope somebody will pick something out of this that is of interest. Uh, if someone picks up out of this about getting their leisure centre involved in somewhere for an air ambulance, if it's about the community deciding to buy defibrillators, etc., it can only be good, and that's really what we're just trying to get across. Absolutely, we can only we can only learn. And we can only develop and, you know, we, we pick different bits out of different things we've seen. And uh, that's happened to, certainly happened to you and happened to me over careers in this uh, in this industry. And uh, I wonder where we'll get to in 20 years' time. Let's hope 2021's a little bit better. Yeah. And in 2041, <laughs> we might have a, an automatic system for getting a casualty out of the pool. <laughs> I'll not be worrying about it unless it's me. <laughs> Andy, good to talk with you. Cheers, um, Robin. I'll just say uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Yeah, well. and, and to you, mate. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, have a good one. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye.